Sorry about that. I thought it would be better just to take a couple of moments to fix that. We'll save the frustration of those sitting in the back not being able to hear. Or perhaps the relief. I don't know. Uh, could you turn with me, please, to 1 Samuel chapter 8? 1 Samuel chapter 8. It's on page uh, 195 for the Church Bibles. And there's an outline that you would have received as you came in. It shows you where you're up to. It might be helpful. And about lead us in prayer. Our loving Father, we thank you that you speak through your word. We pray that uh, this morning uh, that you would speak to each one of us uh, in, uh, in this word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We all need security. We all need to feel that we are safe. We need to know that things in the end will be okay. What is it that gives us security? What is it that gives us that sense that, that we're okay? What makes us think that that will be okay forever, even when we die? Is it money? Money can make us feel more secure now, but certainly won't help afterwards. And no, burning it won't affect the transfer either. Or is it ourselves? Are some of us such self-confident people? That of course you'll be okay. You always are. You always will be. But past performance is no guarantee of future returns. And what makes, we, what makes us think that we can extrapolate our good run into, into eternity anyway. Or, or maybe it's leadership. You know, my pastor says this and this and this, and since he's always right, <laughs> I'm secure. My priest did such and such, that, that gives me confidence. A, a visiting speaker said this and this over me, and, and I know that I'm okay. What is it that gives you ultimate security? Let me try one more time. Stop that thing from moving around. Okay. Now, last year, we did a series on 1 Samuel 1 to 7. Now, in case you missed it, or in case you've got a bad memory, uh, <laughs> let me remind you about what's in it. We'll take a quick helicopter ride across 1 Samuel 1 to 7 to get an overview of the land, and then we'll kind of land at 1 Samuel 8 and then go by car from there, because that's the passage we're looking at this morning. Right? Now, you may remember, because I've said it in, in many times and in many different contexts, the kingdom of God can be expressed as God's people, in God's place, under God's blessing and rule. Now the story of the Old Testament from Exodus onwards is how God set up a, a, a model, a picture of that kingdom, and then later destroyed it. But when he destroyed it, of course, he promised something much better, the real thing, 
God's people in God's place under God's blessing and rule. And we see that actually most clearly in uh, by the time we get to uh, 1 Kings. We see David's and particularly Solomon's reign. That was the model. But God at this point is building up to that model. Now by the time of 1 Samuel, Israel was God's people. Uh, they'd been rescued from Egypt. They'd been constituted as a nation. And they were in God's place. They were in the land that he had promised their forefathers. And they were kind of under God's rule. I mean, God was their king. But that rule wasn't really properly expressed. The book of Judges ended with the words, which was part of actually an ongoing refrain. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. There was a need for some kind of godly leadership. And so, we come to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel was actually meant, is actually meant to follow on from Judges. Now, if you look in the Bible, you've got a Ruth in between. Right? But Ruth is that story that is set in the time of the Judges. It's put there because chronologically that's around the time, but it's not really part of that continuous story that goes from Genesis right to the end of 2 Kings. So 1 and 2 Samuel, which is originally one book, comes straight after Judges. And so it picks up that question of leadership. What kind of leadership does God people, God, does, do God's people need? How could God's rule be expressed in the national life of Israel? Now the books of Samuel opened in chapters 1 and 2 with a story of a woman called Hannah. Right? We like that name. Hannah Hannah was infertile, but she prayed to God and he answered her prayer. He overturned her situation and provided her with a son, Samuel. As he was eventually going to overturn the situation of Israel and provide them with a king, David, by the end of 2 Samuel. Hannah gave Samuel back to God to serve him in the tabernacle under Eli the priest. In chapter 3, God spoke to the boy Samuel. The first message that God gave him was a a terrible message of judgment against Eli and his family because Eli was this godly old priest, but his sons were doing terrible things. They'd been showing contempt for God's sacrifice by eating the parts of the offering that were meant to be offered to God. They'd been sleeping with the women who were serving at the tabernacle, the place of worship. Eli rebuked them, but but he failed to stop them. And they were certainly not the kind of leaders that Israel needed. And so God put them to death, in battle, as he said he would. In the same battle, the ark of God was captured by the Philistines, the the enemies of God's people who lived nearby. We see that in chapter 4. The ark was a special place where God dwelt among his people and it was kept in the tabernacle, which was like a, like a movable temple back in those days. From, they started it back in those days when they were wandering in the desert, coming out of Egypt. Well, the Israelites were silly enough to think that they could manipulate God into fighting for them by actually bringing this ark onto the battlefield. And the Philistines won it. They took it back to their country as a war trophy. 
But in chapter 5 and 6, we see what happened to them. That they put it in the temple of their god Dagon in the town of Ashdod, but for the next day they found Dagon fallen face down on the floor in front of the Ark of Yahweh. So they put him back, the poor thing. But the next day when they came back to the temple, why, he was there lying in the doorway with his head and his hands broken off and only his body remaining. See, Yahweh wasn't behaving terribly respectfully, was he, in the temple of his rival? He was showing how, how pathetic idols are. And then he turned on the people of Ashdod with tumors, with growths on their skin. And so the people said, oh, we can't have this one. We'll send the ark away. And uh, they sent it to another town, to Gath. You know, maybe they didn't like the people in Gath, I don't know. But God would take the people in Gath with the same thing. And Gath sent it on to another city, to Ekron. The people of Ekron said, no way, Jose. So after various negotiations, stringent tests, which we won't go into, Ark was sent back to Israel on a cart, pulled by cows with, with guilt offerings, Philistine style. The Ark of Yahweh was back from exile. And Israel didn't do a thing to make it happen. And so here in the book, the beginning of that book, which deals with the rise of kingly leadership in Israel, we learnt this. Leaders are important. We mustn't make them too important. See, God doesn't need human leaders to look after him. God can look after himself. But the issue of Israel's leadership remained on the agenda. And so 20 years later, in chapter 7, Samuel had come to his own as judge of Israel. And he would be the last of the judges. And he was a good leader. The kind of leader that Israel needed. He challenged Israel to put away all idols, commit themselves solely to serving God. And they did. Samuel prayed for them. He cried out to God on their behalf and God gave them decisive victory over the Philistines. They regained the territory that they'd lost since Joshua's time, expanded their influence. And Samuel continued to be a wise judge for Israel all the days of his life. He was the kind of leader that God's people needed. And it would seem that the problems raised at the beginning of the book, or at the end of the book of Judges, were at last being resolved. Under the leadership of Samuel, the prophet of God, who led God's people by speaking God's word, the nation was back on track. But there was one problem. The problem really comes to the fore at the beginning of chapter 8, which we're touching now, where we're touching down this morning. Problem is, Samuel was not a permanent leader. And his solution to that problem wasn't a good one. Chapter 8, we start from verse 1. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges of Israel. It's a bit strange, isn't it? Judges... Weren't they usually people raised up by God? And remember why God raised up Samuel in the first place? Eli was the leader and his sons were corrupt. Appointing your sons as judges, that wasn't really the way things were meant to work. And we don't know why Samuel did such a thing. But we read on in verse 2. The name of his firstborn was Joel, Joel, and the name of his second one was Abijah. 
and they served at Beersheba. Beersheba was the, uh, the southern border of the land, a long ways from Samuel's base at Ramah, so he couldn't have been involved directly in their daily work. They left them to do it. And how did they turn out? Verse 3, But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. They turned aside after dishonest gain. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. Friends, accepting bribes and perverting justice, that's an activity which God despises. God had told Israel in Exodus chapter 23 verse 8, Exodus 23, verse 18. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds those who see and twists the word of the righteous. In fact, maintaining justice, uncorrupted by bribery, was, was one of the actual conditions that God gave for his people to remain in the land. Deuteronomy 16:19. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Follow justice and justice alone, that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God has given you. They were meant to maintain justice in the land. Avoid corruption. For, as it would be said later in Proverbs chapter 17, verse 23, a wicked man accepts a bribe in secret to avert the course of justice. See, God was very clear to his Old Testament people that there must be no bribes. Corruption was not an option. Justice mattered. And Samuel's sons ignored that. Their motivation was greed. They turned aside after dishonest gain, accepted bribes, and perverted justice. I wonder if anyone here needs to take this as a warning. I know that corruption is, is rife in our society. The temptation is high, isn't it, to give and receive bribes in order to pervert the course of justice. Well, don't do it. Because God is watching you. Better to be poor and honest than to be corrupt and rich. Better to climb the ladder slowly and honestly than to be a shooting star that eventually falls to the ground. Better to be jobless and honest than to do a job that makes you lose your integrity. See, friends, as Christians, there are times when we will have to make a stand. And there are times when it will cost and although having a reputation of being incorruptible not only brings glory to God, it, it also helps people ultimately have confidence in you as well. You know, good ethics is eventually good business in the long term, but not necessarily in the short term. But Christians must maintain good ethics. Not just because it's good business in the long term, but because we have someone higher than our CEO that we give an account to. See, Samuel's sons, Joel and Abijah, even though their father was the great prophet Samuel, let their greed get the better of them. 
and they prefer the justice for brothers. And isn't that sad? Isn't that a mess? Uh, here we are, back to square one of 1 Samuel all over again. Remember? The godly old man with corrupt sons who are going to replace him. So what should we do about this problem? Well, last time there was a problem, remember what happened? God fixed it. He heard the prayers of this barren woman called Hannah and gave her a son. He raised up Samuel from childhood to be his prophet and to deal with the situation. He wiped out Eli's family in a single day. He saw the problem. He found a solution. And what do you think this time? you think God could deal with it again? Yeah, of course he could. And so what did God's people do? They call out to him and beg him to act? Uh, did they cry out to him to save them by, by raising another godly leader like Samuel? Did they show any signs of, of dependence on God or trust in Him as their ruler? Well, no. The people had their own solution to the problem. They had their idea. Instead of calling on God to act, they come up with this idea of a monarchy. Verse 4 and 5. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Now, in one sense, this seems to be a pretty silly request, doesn't it? The problem with Eli was that he replaced his sons in positions of responsibility, although his sons didn't follow his example, right? And the problem with Samuel was that he placed his sons in a position of responsibility, even though his sons didn't follow his example. And so the solution? Set up a monarchy. A system of government where sons automatically replace their fathers, whether or not they follow their example. I mean, hello, how dumb is that as a solution? At least someone likes my jokes. Let's think about it more carefully. They say to Samuel, you are old. And, and he is old. Right? Beginning of verse, uh, chapter, verse 1 of chapter 8 uh, tells us that he is old. But he's not really past it yet, is he? I mean, he lasts much longer in the story. They're not just saying, you're old, you're about to keel over. Let's replace you. Let's find someone to replace you. See, they wanted to get rid of Samuel. They want to get rid of Samuel, obviously, because of the way his sons are acting. And, but they want to get rid of him in such a nice way. It's kind of like save face for the prophet of God. So they're not really saying they, they need a king right now. They need to get rid of Samuel because his sons are so awful and they, just, and they can't just sack him. See, He's a prophet and a judge. That's a formal position. What's, what's there to sack? You only take power from him by appointing a king over him. You can't afford a civil war. You've got to go and do it in a way that saves him face. That gets him on the side of doing it. So Samuel, could you please go and appoint for us a king to lead us, like all the other nations? Of course, Samuel sees through this. I don't want me anymore. 
How'd you feel if you were Samuel? There you are, served them all these years, and now they're wanting you to appoint the, this, find a younger man and appoint him as king. Well, verse 6. When they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. Displeased Samuel. And you bet it. But what does he do about it? Keep reading. So he prayed to the Lord. So he prayed to the Lord. How would you respond? What would you do if someone tries to oust you from your position? At work? church or your social club? What do you do when you're bitterly disappointed with the way things are turning out? What do you do when you're displeased about something that's happened? Samuel prayed to the Lord. To Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one who had put him there in the first place. The God who takes no bribes and does not pervert the course of justice. The God who could vindicate him, show the people what he thought of their silly proposal. The God whose servant Samuel was, whose nation Israel was, whose system the people were talking about over time. Samuel took his position and presented it to God in prayer. That's a great example, isn't it, for us? But you know, God didn't fix the situation for him. He didn't say, okay, stand aside, let me blast these people. Right? Or, let me touch their hearts so they have a change of mind about this whole thing. No, no, God spoke his word to Samuel. And by his word, God showed Samuel a different way of looking at the situation. Uh, his way, a God-centered way. See, Samuel wasn't the only one who was taking the people's request personally. This was more than a rejection of Samuel. Far more importantly, it was a rejection of God himself. Verse 7. The Lord said to him, Listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. You don't take it personally, Samuel. It's not really about you and them. It's about them and me. And it's not just since you've been around. They've always been like this, verse 8. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now, listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. And so that's what Samuel does. He uh, warns them very seriously about the consequences of their actions. Uh, verse, verse 10 to 18. Samuel told the word of the Lord of the people who are asking for a king. He said, This is what the king will, who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plough his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your manservants and maidservants and the best of the cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your crops and when you, your, and you yourselves will become his slaves. When the day comes, you will cry out for relief for the king you have chosen. 
and the Lord will not answer you in that day. What's the king like? The king will take, 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 take. He will take your sons, he will take your daughters, he will take your grain, he will take your flocks, and you end up enslaved. And the very thing that was accomplished by the Exodus, freedom from slavery, will be brought back, at least in part, by the monarchy. Samuel warns him about the king. He says, and this is not reversible. God's not going to answer you when you change your mind. But the people, ah, they were determined. Would not heed the prophet's warning. So verse 19. People refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. And then the real reason, the real reason for the king comes out in verse 20. Then we will be like all the other nations. With a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. We want a king to lead us, to go out before us, and fight our battles like all the other nations. Now, you can actually understand this, can't you? The biggest problem Israel faced was security. It was a military problem. They had enemies in the land who were always out to exploit their weakness. Enemies who were well equipped and well organized. Israel was bigger than them, but they were disunited. They didn't really have a a central structure to bind them together. They didn't have a standing army. They didn't have a permanent military ruler. Other nations did. So they said, we need a king to, to lead us, go before us, to fight our battles. That's the way to peace and security. Or is it? Who fought for them when they came out of Egypt? Who fought for them when they came into the promised land? Who fought for them in the time of judges and over and over again saved them from their enemies? Was it not God, their king? What was the answer, the chaos of the time of the judges? Human answer, get a king. God's answer, keep the covenant. See, the times when the nations around them that got the better of them, that's the times when they turned away from God, when they followed other gods, when they worshipped idols. And you know, when they repented and they turned back and they obeyed God, things worked. God saved them. He always rescued them from their enemies. He always raised up judges for them to rescue them when they called out to him. Unlike the nations around them, they were held together by something very different from a monarchical institution. They were held together by the covenant, by their, by their treaty with Yahweh, by the promises they'd made to him and him to them. He was their true king. Their protection, their security was all in Yahweh himself. So what would be the answer to the leadership crisis in Israel? What would be the answer to the military threats from their neighbors? God's answer. Keep the covenant and I'll look after you. Human answer. Get a king. Now it's not as if 
Those two things are mutually exclusive. Under King David, both of them would operate at the same time. But you see, the problem here is that they were implying the covenant wouldn't work. They, that's not where they were looking to for their security. They, they wanted the king like the other nations because that's what they thought would give them that unity and the security. They wanted to place their security in the hands of a king because they didn't trust God to keep his covenant. They didn't believe. They didn't rely on. They didn't, they didn't rest on his promises to them. We want the king to rule over us. And we'll be like the other nations. The king to lead us and go out before us and to fight our battles. You see, friends, there are sometimes things that are okay in themselves, but the motivation for us wanting them is wrong. Sometimes it's the motivation that determines uh, whether something's right or wrong. God was always going to give them a king in the end. That, that was his plan. The book of Deuteronomy even makes provision for such a time and tells them what the king is going to be like. You can have a king and keep the covenant. This depends on why you want to have one. My friends, there's lots of things in this world that are like that. Let me give you some examples. Money. Money is a great blessing from God. It's not evil in itself. It's, it's very useful. But if we want it because that's where our ultimate security lies, well, well that's wrong. We'll never be secure. That's why in our New Testament reading today, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, it says, Command those who are rich in this world not to be arrogant and not to put their hope in wealth, but which, is, which is so uncertain, to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. See, God provides money for our enjoyment and so that we can do good things with it. But we had to put our hope in God, not money. Work, another blessing. It's a good thing. We're told to work. If a man will not work, the Apostle Paul says, he shall not eat. But if our ultimate security comes from knowing who we are in our company rather than from who we are in Christ, well, we've got our security in the wrong place. And it's dangerous too, isn't it? Because one day you'll be retrenched or sacked or retire. Now, unless you die first, it's going to happen. But who you are in Christ, child of God, your heavenly Father, that's, that's not going to change for all eternity. Much more secure than your job. Nothing wrong with having leaders in church. Biblical thing to do. But if we have security from them instead of from Jesus, then we're like the Israelites. If we think our leaders are the ones who will keep us safe as long as we follow them, we'll be okay, then, then we're in danger of being led astray. I know you don't just follow me. You test whatever I say against the word of God because I can't give you security, only God can. Nothing wrong with having institutions in themselves. But if our confidence is in the institution because it's a, a nice established institution like the Anglican Church, then we've got in the wrong place, haven't we? Institutions can go wrong. Institutions can be corrupt. Institutions can, can lose sight of what they're meant to be there for and exist simply for the state, sake of the institution. Our security doesn't rely on belonging to an institution like the Anglican denomination. It relies on belonging to Jesus Christ. 
There's all kinds of things we can talk about. Constitutions. Good to have a constitution to govern our life together, but what holds us together is not our constitution. It's a spiritual unity of fellowship in Christ. Nothing wrong with methodologies. It's good to have methodologies. Nothing wrong with tools or programs. You know, two ways to live. Great tool for explaining the gospel. Christianity Explorer. Great tool for introducing non-Christians to the Savior. But security doesn't lie in being able to explain two ways to live or running Christianity Explored. It's trusting the Lord Jesus, which they point to. The Bible study material we use. Great tools for helping us think about the Bible. I choose them because I think they're reliable ones, but security doesn't lie from having good Bible study tools, as if tools were the important thing. It comes from God, whom we meet in the Bible as we read it. See, the moment we rely on any of those things, the moment we put our trust in these things instead of in God, when we look to those things as security as a church, then we are being idolatrous. Israel had God as their king to guarantee their security. All they needed to do was to keep the covenant, to worship and obey him. But things began to look wobbly. Dark clouds loomed in the distance. Instead of crying out to God for help, they cried out for a king. Nothing wrong with having a king. But they wanted it for all the wrong reasons. God's response? Well, God pronounces judgment on his people for rejecting him. Verse 21. When Samuel heard all the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered, Listen to them and give them a king. God, in his judgment, gave his people what they wanted. God's punishment for their rebellion was to let them rebel. To let them do it, not to restrain them. He he warned them, but he didn't stop them. If they don't want me as their king, well, let them have what they want. Let them have their own king. Brothers and sisters, when we pray, let's make sure that we're praying according to God's will. Sometimes we can be so one-track-minded, we can be so sure of what we want, so convinced of what is best for us, that we kind of like demand it from God in prayer. Lord, you must give me this. You promised that you give what I ask for in faith according to your will, and, and I'm believing you for it. It's a funny way to pray, isn't it? I'm believing God for this. Perhaps I'm, I'm, I'm convinced myself that this is God's will. That's probably more like it. But friends, let's, let's not do that. Of course we must pray and ask our Heavenly Father for things. That, that's a given. He delights to, to hear and answer the prayers of His children. But let's also remember our weakness in asking. The duplicity of our hearts. Let's also express that to God. Lord, I really, really, really want this, but <laughs> you know what is best. Your will be done. See, we're our Father's children. We love Him. We trust Him. We ask things from Him. We don't demand things from Him. I wonder, just wonder, if God may sometimes give people what they demand as an act of discipline, like He did for the Israelites. 
on a macro level, on a big picture of the whole thing, we do see that happening. We see God's judgment on people by letting us do what we want and face the consequences of it. If we read Romans 1, God's judgment on the human race as a whole for sin is what? And people love us. Let them sin. Let them do more sin. To let us get away with it. To let us do more and more to, and reap the harvest that we've sown. You could even describe God's eternal punishment in that way. We say to God, every time we sin, we don't want you as our king. We don't want you as our God. We don't have a relationship with you. Because you tell us what to do. We want to be autonomous. And God in his perfect justice says, okay. You don't want me. You don't have me. And if you don't have me, you don't have anything good that comes from me because everything good comes from me. And if you don't have love, you don't have relationship, you don't have life. And well, that's hell, isn't it? See, God's just punishment is giving us what we want, warning us about the consequences should we pursue that course of action, letting us face the consequences that we have chosen. And it's an active thing, it's a personal thing. Not just a passive. God said to Samuel, listen to them, warn them, but if they still want a king, let them have one. And there's judgment on them. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, everyone go back to his town. They demanded a king, and a king they would get. Next week we continue this story and see the king that they got. Tim's going to be taking us through that. But as we think about Israel's demand for a king, we must eventually consider our own king. Not the national king who's, in whose honor we had a public holiday yesterday, uh, but our true king, the ultimate king. The one who indeed fulfills God's promises. The one who is our true leader. Well, you see, brothers and sisters, we do have a king to lead us, to go out before us, and to fight our battles. But he's not a king that we've demanded. He's not a king that comes instead of obeying the covenant. He's not a king whose kingship detracts from the kingdom of God. He's the king who perfectly expresses God's kingship over us. And unlike the kings Samuel warned about, his kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. He said to himself, my kingdom is not of this world. He's not the kind of king whose motto is take, 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 take. But rather, give, 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 give. He, as we sang earlier, is the king of love who gave his life for us his people, who died on the cross in our place to take our sin and our hell so that we can be forgiven, have eternal life in his kingdom. And at the cross he fought our battles. He decisively defeated all our spiritual enemies. And he leads us to go out and, and fight with him by proclaiming his gospel. He is our leader. He is our king. He is the one who gives us permanent security. Because through Jesus, we have eternal life and a pace and glory forever. 
And it's a place that's not based on our performance. It's not based on our goodness. not based on our strength. But based on his perfect righteousness. It's a place that's not dependent on our ability or our cunning. But on the kindness that he showered upon us with overwhelming generosity. And it's a place that's secure. A place that no one can take from us. That neither death nor life, that neither angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation can separate us from that love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, we are secure, both now and on the day of judgment. There is no better security than under the loving rule of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father.